In this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show, praying a prayer to the Holy Trinity by St. Frederick of Utrecht. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, who by his almighty power and love created me, making me in the image and likeness of God. Glory be to the Son, who by his precious blood delivered me from hell and opened for me the gates of heaven. Glory be to the Holy Spirit, who has sanctified me in the sacrament of baptism and continues to sanctify me by the graces I receive daily from his bounty. Glory be to the three adorable persons of the Holy Trinity, now and forever. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swaim, we head to the archives today to share with you some of our favorite interviews of days gone by. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Brandon McGinley. His book, The Prodigal Church, Restoring Catholic Tradition in an Age of Deception. Brandon, welcome back. Yep. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing fine and happy to be talking to you about this again. So uh, I'm going to venture to say that most of us involved in this conversation, either talking or listening, know the story of the prodigal son. You know, the son who asks for his inheritance, goes off to a distant country, and as Jesus tells us, he squanders his inheritance on a life of dissipation. Now, I know this word dissipation is very important to you. Can you tell us about it and how you see it applying to the prodigal church? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I love, I love the the use of that word because we we tend to think of it. Uh, we tend not to use it in the context of of lifestyle any longer. But it is. It's actually a really cool, cool word to describe the way that a life of wastefulness and uh, kind of carelessness it 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 damages the integrity of the person and damages the, the integrity of his or her relationships with others. And so uh, the thing that is dissipated uh, in the natural realm, uh, the, the example I always use is a sandcastle that's washed away by the tide. And uh, something that's dissipated becomes one with the world around it. It loses its integrity, and it loses what it means to be itself, and becomes indistinguishable from its surroundings. Um, and uh, and so that seems to me to be a fair analogy for the way the church has come to be seen by the world around it, and and often acts in in, in the world over the past. Oh, you know, I don't want to just say a few generations because everyone's going to think I'm just talking about the council, <laughs> sure. but uh, over the past century or so, um, such that uh, such 
such that the uh, the things that make us distinctive, and not just in terms of liturgical aesthetics and other traditional trappings like that, although that's part of it, but also in terms of a integrated message of social justice, uh, properly understood, and of uh, and of a life of holiness. Uh, that, all the all the things that that make us distinctive too often uh, were were let to lapse um, because we. Uh, felt uh, that they were going to make us unpalatable to the modern world. And it wasn't just the dissipation that turned the prodigal son back to his father. There was also a famine that happened. So extend the metaphor for us. What is the famine, do you think, as we talk about the prodigal church? You know, we, we get used to this idea of being mainstream, which then gets us to this point of dissipation where, where we're, we feel like we have to keep up with what's mainstream in order to uh, in order to maintain our respectability, and of course, right at that moment, uh, we end up in an increasingly and aggressively secular world where all of the things that we had, all that patrimony, whether it's the patrimony of the prodigal son or of the patrimony of the church, in terms of teaching, in terms of in terms of art, in terms of everything you can think of, all the stuff that has sustained us <laughs> that we have started to let lapse becomes especially needed at during this moment this period of aggressive secularization which leaves people looking for something it leaves people looking for something real something something with an anchor in in deep history but also with an anchor in heaven to hold on to and we often have not been there too happy to be uncontroversial uh, and of course the prodigal son finds himself you know in a famine and all the things that he had, all the advantages he had, he has given up. And yet, of course, the whole point of the book is that this is precisely the time to turn back. This is precisely the time to, to, take, to, 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 to learn the lesson of the parable and to learn the lesson of, of hardship and say, ah, ah, we had what we needed. And beautifully, it can be restored, unlike the dissipation in the natural realm, the dissipation of the sandcastle, which cannot be restored. We as individuals, as communities, as a church can be. You know, you you talk about restoration and, and you talk about turning back. And I think when you say turning back, you mean turning back to the father as the prodigal son did and not turning back the clock. Why is it that we can't just bring back what we once had, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the thing is, is that the, the church is at her best. She isn't just recreating some past moment in time. And to attempt to do so, I compare in the book to a Renaissance fair. That's not traditionalism. It might be fun, <laughs> but it's not, uh, it's not a living, dynamic tradition. When the Church is at her best, she is taking all of that deep history and the, the anchor in heaven, the, 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 the Church triumphant, and applying that to a particular moment and saying, okay, well, not, not how can we recreate the Counter-Reformation, how can we recreate the Middle Ages, or how can we recreate the 1950s, but what can we learn from the experience of Rome and Roman persecution, and what can we learn from the Reformation, what can we learn from the, from the long 19th century, and then apply to the 21st? And of course, in one sense, the renewal has to start with us, with our families. But how does it also have to start with our shepherds, our bishops? I, I think that uh, the, the conversation about bishops has to begin with a, a reminder of the piety that we owe the leaders of the Church, um, up to and including, of course, the Holy Father. There's a kind of a strain of thinking and speaking and rhetoric right now in the Church where 
Uh, it begins with a kind of spluttering contempt for everybody uh, above the laity in the church uh, hierarchy. You know, that's also starting off on the wrong foot. It doesn't mean that we should be thrilled with the way that every bishop acts. That's obviously true. But we have to begin with, with an understanding of piety. Uh, my, uh, a, a priest in my own parish uh, gave a wonderful homily that I mentioned in the book, and he talked about how the laity and even parish priests will not be judged by God on the administration of the Church. Bishops and, and other uh, hierarchical figures <laughs> yeah. will. And uh, that should give the laity a certain peace <laughs> yeah. um, and remind us of what our actual duties are. Now, at the same time, bishops are more perhaps than any time in the past due to mass media, the public face of the Church. And so they need to be examples, first of all, of holiness. And if we can start right there, and understanding, of course, the, the immense responsibilities they have, you know, at the end of the day, that kind of grace-filled leadership isn't always satisfying and rarely is satisfying to the secular world, and sometimes isn't even satisfying to the faithful. You know, bold action, sometimes it can, sometimes it does. Like, you can be bold and prudent in a way that isn't necessarily satisfying to anybody except God. Yeah. How many times do we do we hear people want to like you know these public um, they they want some kind of public uh, undressing of of this or that politician on both sides of the aisle um, and yet we see bishops you know very publicly offering communion to those who um, at least on on a public level are are very much not in line with the church. Right. Absolutely. And one of the things I, you know, I mentioned in the book is how great it would be for the public witness of the Church for there to be more, um, even more political confrontation. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the Church can be, and I think must be, more political without being more partisan. Because politics is just the word that describes the organization of our common life. And there's very little that should should concern the church more than that. The church isn't just about individual piety. It's creating a society of grace, a society of faith. And so um, the church needs to needs to be boldly present in the public square, even as it is not reliably partisan. And certainly when it comes to the issue of abortion, we would very much hope for that. But it doesn't stop with abortion, does it? I mean, can you talk about the seamless garment mentality and how it was hijacked and then also how it can be reclaimed? So, you know, the idea of a seamless garment comes from Chicago Cardinal Joseph Bernadine, and the idea itself conceptually is sound. It's just the idea that Catholic truth holds together, and it's a beautiful image from, from Christ's passion, in a seamless garment. There's, it's not a bunch of things patched together. It all holds together in a unity. Unfortunately, that's been hijacked to basically not to upgrade other issues besides abortion, but to downgrade abortion uh, in terms of uh, our, the Church's public witness, witness, to say, oh, we shouldn't talk so much about abortion. You know, if we're going to take that, take that idea politically, it means we should be bold about everything else. We should be bold about the just wage. We should be bold about migrants. We should be bold about other aspects of justice, because it does all hold together. But I would also say that the, that idea of the seamless garment should inform the way the Church acts in all aspects of life. So things like, you know, if there's, a, if there's a big church fundraising event on a Friday, even not in Lent, offering a—it could be an indulgent 
meatless meal, like salmon or something like that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but just something that just indicates that we actually believe these traditions that have made the Church what she is as a cultural force for, for, for millennia, instead of being uh, that kind of patchwork where it's like, oh, sometimes, sometimes we're Catholic and sometimes we're just a social service organization like anybody else. Well, I love the point that you make in the book about um, even if you hear from research that contributions are maximized on Friday, as you say in the book, then shred the research, schedule the event for a different day and trust God to make up the difference. He's not bound by the latest in fundraising science. And we've run out of time, Brandon, but uh, I really want to encourage folks to pick up the book and uh, read about how to implement some of these things just in our own families um, as a way to be a part of this renewal of the visible church. We've been talking to Brandon McGinley. The book is The Prodigal Church. Brandon, thank you. Yep, thank you. Talk to you soon. All right, you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. You listen to the Sunrise Morning Show? Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of the Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of the Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. L-E-A-H at sacredheartradio.com. EWTN's religious catalog has great summer reading for kids. In The Unsolvable Problem and The Light in You, Mother Claire is on a mission to introduce religious life to Catholic kids who may have never even seen a sister and to do so with humor, verb, and imaginative storytelling. For more, visit EWTNRC.com today. on with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Joseph Pierce with the Augustan Institute. You can join his inner sanctum and support his work at jpierce.co. We've been learning about the history of poetry using his book, Poems Every Catholic Should Know. Good morning, Joseph. Good morning, Anna. All right. So we are going to be discussing a poem known as the Lament for Walsingham, which is said to be written by St. Philip Howard. 
Now, first of all, before we get to the shrine of Walsingham, can you tell us about the apparition of Our Lady of Walsingham? Yes, I mean, basically the shrine arose from an apparition uh, that happened in 1061, right at the end of the Anglo-Saxon era in, in English history, obviously the Norman Conquest in 1066, just five years later. If you like the supernova, sometimes call it the supernova, it was the, it was the golden end to Anglo-Saxon England because 1061 was this apparition in Norfolk, Walsingham, the Lady of the Manor, had this vision of the Blessed Virgin who asked her to build a replica of her home in, in Nazareth, which she did. Actually, at the time of that apparition, we actually had a saint on the throne in England as well. St. Edward the Confessor was king of England. So this was a golden age, basically, in, in English Catholic history, when England was blessed with this apparition of the Blessed Virgin. And this became one of the major shrines in all of Christendom. So why this lament of the shrine at Walsingham? Well, this lament of the destruction of the shrine by uh, King Henry VIII in the late 1530s. The statue was taken to London and burned. The shrine itself was destroyed. The abbey that's attached to the shrine was, was destroyed. The Franciscan friary that's also attached to the shrine was destroyed. And this brought to an end uh, in 450 years of pilgrimage from all over Europe, not just from England. The Walsingham Way, as it was called, was known as the Milky Way because uh, there were so many pilgrims on the path to Walsingham. It was like the number of stars in the heavens. So it was one of the major shrines alongside Rome and Jerusalem and Santiago de Compostela. Uh, Walsingham was the major Marian shrine of medieval Christendom, and it was destroyed in the 1530s by Henry VIII. And the lament is the lament for the destruction of the shrine. And so we're going to have you read that for us in just a moment. But can you um, first tell us a little bit about St. Philip Howard, to whom this poem is attributed? So basically, following Henry VIII's war on the Catholic Church and establishment of a state religion, there were many, many Catholics who heroically resisted uh, and, and, and fought for the freedom of the faith. And many of them were put to death. There were at 40 beat, uh, canonized martyrs, uh, 85 uh, beatified martyrs, and many other martyrs, some of which have been recognized, some of haven't. Uh, so Philip Howard, the Howard family, uh, are the Dukes of Norfolk, is the, the, the most senior aristocratic Catholic family that for the most part stayed loyal to the faith for all the centuries of persecution. Arundel Castle is their, is their stately home. Actually, there was a story recently in the news of uh, um, Mary, Queen of Scots' rosary, which was kept in Arundel Castle. Uh, there was, a, there was a, a burglary and it was stolen. So, this is the, so, the, so Philip Howard was a major aristocrat, uh, but basically had a conversion experience uh, and, and took his faith so seriously that he was charged with treason um, and sentenced to death, uh, but basically lounged in prison, and, and the sentence was never carried out. But he spent 10 years in prison, unable to see his wife and unable to see his newborn son, who was basically born after he was imprisoned uh, and, until, his, until, until his death. An incredible story. And so uh, will you now read for us the lament for Walsingham? Yes, indeed. The lament for Walsingham by, uh, allegedly by St. Philip Howard. We don't know for certain. Bitter, bitter, oh, to behold the grass to grow where the walls of Walsingham so stately did show. Such were the worth of Walsingham while she did stand. Such are the racks as now do show of that so holy land. Level, level with the ground, the towers do lie, which with their golden glittering tops pierced out to the sky. 
Where are gates? No gates are now. The ways unknown, where the press of friars did pass, while far her fame was blown. Owls do strike where the sweetest hymns lately were sung. Toads and serpents hold their dens where the palmers did throng. Weep, weep, O Walsingham, whose days are nights. Blessings turn to blasphemies, holy deeds to despite. Sin is where Our Lady sat, heaven turned to hell. Satan sits where Our Lord did sway. Walsingham, O farewell. Joseph, does this hit you as as an Englishman? It, very much so. I, for me, I live the I live the Reformation. It hasn't gone away. It's as if it's yesterday. Our Lady of Walsingham accompanied me on the journey uh, across the threshold to Rome. So yes, but the, the good I mean, the good news, you know, the whole of human history is about the war between the Church and her enemies. When, whenever the Church is apparently killed, she always rises again. So. Now, Walsingham today is a very vibrant shrine. The number of pilgrims are increasing year by year. Uh, it's a very holy place again. It's risen from the ashes. It's resurrected. So, you know, it's not, it's not about defeat. It's about the passion of Christ and his resurrection. Amen. We've been talking to Joseph Pierce. You can find his book, Poems Every Catholic Should Know, and his website, jpierce.co, linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Joseph, thank you so much. My pleasure as always. God bless you, Anna. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. It's 21 minutes past the hour. We'll be right back. This is Father Rob Jack from Mount St. Mary Seminary in Cincinnati, Ohio. In this month of August, we celebrate the memorial of St. Augustine, one of the four great doctors of the Latin Church. He is known in the Church as the Doctor of Grace. Augustine, as a young man, studied rhetoric, and he sought to be a famous orator and philosopher. He lived a life of vanity and ambition, and a life of immorality. Later on, Augustine traveled to Milan to open up a school of rhetoric, and it was there that he got to know St. Ambrose. Augustine liked to go and hear Ambrose's sermons in the Cathedral of Milan because he was such an eloquent preacher. Slowly, Ambrose's words began to have an effect on Augustine's heart. Augustine recognized the truth of Christianity, but he was still unwilling to give himself over to it. That is why we read in his book, The Confessions, he said, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. But when he was 32, Augustine had a mysterious experience in the garden. In this experience, he heard a voice which said, Tolly et lege, tolly et lege, take and read. And he picked up the Bible and he read from St. Paul's letter, which said to put on Christ and make no use of the things of the flesh. From that experience, he gave himself totally over to Christ, and he was baptized by St. Ambrose on the Easter Vigil of the year 387. In the year 391, he was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Hippo. Four years later, he was named Bishop of Hippo. At his conversion, Augustine realized how much time he had wasted that he could have given to God. And for that reason, he set out to make up for lost time. He produced many writings and homilies that have importance for us today. This is seen in his writings in the Confessions in which he wrote, Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. St. Augustine, pray for us. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Father Boniface Hicks, author of Personal Prayer, 
a guide to receiving the Father's love. Today we're talking about liturgical prayer. Father, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Great to be with you. I guess as a monk, your whole world is ordered around liturgical prayer. <laughs> yes. I, I suppose uh, every every religious, but monks in particular, are, are kind of the... Uh, the vanilla of, uh, of of religious life, the the most basic flavor and the original to to come on the scene, and yeah, our, our life uh, as Benedictines is certainly centered around liturgical prayer, the liturgy of the hours, the liturgy of the mass. Well, I have fallen in love with liturgical prayer uh, over the years, but it was a new concept to me. I know it was a new concept to you because you weren't even a believer for a good chunk of your life, but as an evangelical, it was always extemporaneous prayer me just presenting my needs to the Lord. And sometimes we'd have little methods like the Acts method, the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, structure to it, but it was always our own words. Um, what kind of a gift is the Church giving us by giving us liturgical prayer? Yeah, it's a, it's a great gift. You know, and the funny description that you just made about it always being extemporaneous and then it also having structure, I mean, that's the, what really happens is what our extemporaneous prayer gets gets ritualized because we're just not really that creative. We follow the same patterns, we pick up those patterns from other people, and if you just extend that across the entire world, then you've started to develop liturgy uh, in terms of a universal ritual. But then to actually have a, a, a structure of uh, offices, orders that, that preside at those liturgies, and that actually they tie in, uh, because of the Church, into the liturgy of heaven, into the prayer of heaven, that there is a structure to the prayer in heaven with the angels and saints, and we get to participate in that through the Church's prayer, which is the liturgy. So there is something truly heavenly about the liturgy, and at the same time, uh, this, this particular chapter in our book on personal prayer, liturgical prayer is, is not personal prayer as such, but of course we bring our personal prayer into the liturgical prayer, and that's the beautiful meeting point. When I pray the Mass, there's something entirely extemporaneous about that. The way that I participate in the Mass on any given day, the, the concerns I bring from my heart, the uh, particular petitions that I might have, the areas uh, that I need to confess, the areas of thanksgiving that I want to lift up, are going to be different than the person sitting next to me in the pew. And all of that can happen in the same context of prayer, which is amazing. And that's really what's happening across the entire world and across time as heaven and earth are united in the, in the prayer of the liturgy. So there's something so beautiful about liturgical prayer as we understand what it is and how to enter into it. And it is, as we also talk about in our, in our book, a main theme is that prayer is, uh, you know, Christian prayer, human prayer is human. We bring our humanity into it. And we're all too aware of that in liturgical prayer. I mean, it's uh, beautiful in some human ways, and it's a mess in some other human ways. And yet all of that, God takes all of that up into heaven in, in the context of that liturgical prayer. Well, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that aspect of it, because I think some of us notice that um, when we go to different Masses, um, that a different priest will maybe emphasize a different part of the Mass that you know is particularly special to them. Like, you can tell that when they say the same words that another priest would say, those, pr those words kind of have a special meaning to that particular priest. But I kind of discovered it in regard to the rosary. Even though these things are structured and tested and proven, like you say, we bring ourselves to them, so it's 
our subjective reality tapping into the objective reality, and it's a recipe for something beautiful. That's right. And, and the kind of thing that would happen maybe out loud in the, in the rosary, as there are little ways that that can, you know, a little bit can be added here and a little bit can be added there, and, and uh, maybe a little meditation can be mixed in, or the fruit of the rosary, or, of the mystery, or those kinds of things. In liturgical prayer, we would keep that more minimal so that each individual can add it in on their own. And, and that's really what you saw before the Council uh, with the, the form of the Mass, that the congregation was largely in silence, but everybody had their own devotion, had their own emphasis, had their own way of entering into the Mass uh, at that time. Our, our celebration of the Mass now is more interactive, and that's a a different aspect that the Church discerned is, is important for our time. But even still, as we're listening, as we're focusing in the, in the Eucharistic prayer, some of the different parts that we're not sort of actively doing as much, we bring our hearts in our own personal ways. And again, the fact that so many people can do that all at the same time under the same veil of the liturgical prayer is, is such a beautiful reality. And the fact that you can walk into any church in the world and get the same thing is a testament to, you know, why the church says this is how we're going to do it, because we're all going to do it together. Um, we're all going to do it in our own way, but we're all doing it together. It's a unifying force. So this is all part of uh, your chapter on prayer with Word and Sacrament. We've talked about litur liturgical prayer a little bit, uh, but in terms of all the forms of prayer that you can think of, Eucharistic adoration from an outside perspective must seem the most impractical because for many of us, when we go to a holy hour, if anybody were to look in on us, they might just think, well, that person just kind of sitting there. Yeah, all the real action is happening on the inside. <laughs> That's the best part. When you know what's happening in a Eucharistic Adoration Chapel, it's very moving to see all those people just sitting there. And if you don't know what's happening there, it seems very strange. But that's a little bit how the uh, invisible world of faith appears. And uh, the idea that the liturgy, as we've talked about it before, in terms of the Mass and its external rituals, would be somehow more interesting. Now, there are elements of beauty and there are dimensions that are striking, but if you don't understand the meaning behind it, it also is a bit strange. And uh, the, the idea that just because there's some movement, it's somehow more acceptable, well, I think that's how we got ourselves into a situation of really losing track of the meaning of the liturgy, and then it sort of turns, devolves into uh, some pseudo-entertainment or something else, and other strange things happen. But, yeah, from the outside, Eucharistic adoration seems a, a bit strange, but from the inside, it's such a beautiful way of prayer, because... Again, with eyes of faith, we see the reality of the living God who has made himself really present to us under the appearance of bread. And when we have that opportunity to go before him truly face to face, again, a reality that we perceive only in shadows with our senses, because we, what we see with our eyes is a piece of bread, but what we see with our faith, with our hearts, is truly the living God, is Jesus Christ in his body, blood, soul, and divinity. And then you say, why in the world would I want to be anywhere else? Eucharistic adoration really opens up the possibility for us to have that kind of one-on-one -on -one encounter with God, to speak to him heart-to-heart. -heart. And 
over a period of time, you mentioned a holy hour, you know, there's nothing that requires you to be there for an hour because it's Eucharistic adoration, but that is a practice that has become so popular, and it is so beautiful. Spending an hour in mental prayer before the sacramental presence of God is something that will transform anybody's life, and that's the power of Eucharistic adoration. It transforms lives, it transforms parishes, it transforms whole areas, because that encounter transforms us from the inside out. It brings a lot of our inside out when we spend that kind of time in silence, and then bring that before God. Uh, Something so beautiful happens, and it really becomes part of the the core of our relationship with Him, is it brings a lot of us out, and it gives us a chance to encounter a lot of Him. So I know a lot of our listeners do holy hours. Occasionally I'll get uh, notes from our listeners who say, I only catch 15 minutes of your show on my way to my holy hour. And you know what? I think, I think if you turn off our, my radio show to go do a holy hour, I don't have a problem with that at all. As a matter of fact, pray for me while you're in there. <laughs> you know, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but, you know, in my work with converts, and I am one and you are one, who don't have a lifelong experience of Eucharistic adoration or holy hours, uh, this can be kind of a, a curious practice. Um, I remember someone asked on one of our Coming Home Network forums, you know, I keep hearing these great things about a holy hour but uh, and Eucharistic adoration, but how long do I have to go for it to count? Um, is it disrespectful for me to bring something to read in there in front of the Blessed Sacrament? Am I allowed to make eye contact with anybody if I'm in there? Um, what would you say to someone who's never engaged in going to a Blessed Sacrament chapel to help them maybe prepare themselves uh, to enter into that? That's a great question. Well, one of the things that we do in our book continuously, and you and I have talked about this, is continue to look at the relational analogy. If you went to go and talk to the king, and you brought his book, and you just sat in his presence and read his book, there's something missing there. There's an opportunity for a personal engagement. Now, if you brought his book, and you read a little section, and you talked to him about it, well, that's something you do with a with a king or with an author or, you know, somebody that you wanted to spend time with. Uh, likewise, the, the analogy of, uh, of spousal love is also very helpful. You know, if you, if you get together with your wife on a date and you bring your reading with you, it's probably not going to go real far in uh, deepening your relationship. But if you brought something with you to discuss with her, then that could be a real opening for some interpersonal communion. That's the way that I would balance that. So Scripture is the best because that's really the Word of God, so you'd have the Word of God and the very presence of God there in, in adoration. But to read Scripture in a way like Lexio Divina, to take a little bit of the Word, talk with the Lord about it, open our hearts to Him, and as much as possible not have things between uh, Him and ourselves. That's what we want to strive for. Now, as we have to work through some of the dimensions of our humanity, some people are very fidgety people, some people are very curious people. And again, if, you're, if you go out on a date with your wife and you're looking at everybody else in the restaurant, that's not going to go over so well. And so while looking at everybody else is, you know, sometimes we can't help ourselves in a restaurant or in adoration, but um, those are, using those relational analogies I think answers a lot of the questions. Great reflections this morning. Father Boniface Hicks, we've got your book, Personal Prayer, A Guide for Receiving the Father's Love, linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. Great to be with you. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show.
We'll be right back. Coffee seems to become more important when any new school year rolls around, and this is a year to consider treating yourself to some truly delicious coffee. For that, we can highly recommend Mystic Monk Coffee, and when you shop their site after clicking the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, you earn us a commission to help fund the show. You can also treat yourself to a new Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug in our online store. Get a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. Some figures in the Bible remain a mystery to us. One such figure is the man healed by Jesus at the pool of Bethsaida. You remember him. He was suffering for 38 years with no one to take him to the pool of water for healing. Jesus walked by, directed him to pick up his mat, and walk. He did just that. When confronted by the authorities, this cripple said he had no idea who healed him on the Sabbath. Later, he met Jesus in the temple, and then he returned to the authorities and told them that it was Jesus. Was he so filled with joy at his healing that he announced it hoping they would be healed too, spiritually? This would make this crippled man a loyal witness for Jesus. Or was he contributing to the hostility so many had towards the Lord? In this line of thinking, the man remained spiritually crippled. Perhaps John leaves this story so ambiguous so that we can put ourselves into it. What would be our response to the Lord? For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Dr. Regis Martin, professor at Franciscan University. You can find his podcast, In Search of the Still Point, at regismartin.podbean.com. Dr. Martin, good morning. Good morning. Uh, nice to be with you. To set this up, uh, I know this is probably the case for you, but the best people that I know in this life, Dr. Martin, are going through some of the worst times imaginable right now. And so I think we all need examples of patience and perseverance and suffering with grace. And uh, you have an interesting story about St. Francis de Sales. I wonder if you could share that with us. Yeah, it's a, a two-part uh, story, but let me try and simplify the uh, the narrative. Uh, as he lay dying, uh, the doctors, I guess, following uh, the science of, of uh, the 16th century, uh, applied a hot poker uh, to his temple, thinking that that might uh, uh, jumpstart uh, 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 the uh, the organs. Uh, when, when in fact it, it simply augmented uh, the pain, which now became quite excruciating. Uh, and he endured it uh, silently, quietly, gripping his rosary uh, you know, all the more fiercely. And uh, that teaches us, I, I think, uh, a certain lesson that patient endurance uh, uh, may pay off. Uh, and in fact, uh, in his case, it did, because uh, shortly thereafter, uh, they, they begin the litany of the saints. And when they invoke uh, the Holy Innocence, which happens uh, to have been that feast day, uh, he expires. He gives up the ghost and returns in triumph to God, uh, who crowns him with everlasting glory. Uh, you know, the last, uh, the last moments of, of a man's life, I think, are pretty revelatory. They, they indicate the quality of, uh, of his courage, uh, the grace 
the unbought grace of, of his life. But but as instructive as that example is, it pales, I think, alongside an earlier example when Francis went through a period of mental anguish. He had been a student at the Sorbonne, and uh, a number of his professors had been infected by Calvinist theology, and they imparted uh, that deep pessimism uh, to young Francis, and they persuaded him that uh, he was among the damned, uh, which means, of course, when he died, he would go straight to hell and there curse God forever. And and this was just unbearable. Uh, and so he pleads with God. Uh, he says, look, even if I'm to be cursed uh, and, and sent to hell, at least uh, let me not uh, curse you. And before I go, let me at least be able to love you. Uh, unstintingly. And this went on for I don't know how many weeks. And then finally, one day on his way home from from class, he pops into a Dominican church, and there is this lovely uh, portrait of Our Lady. And uh, the uh, memorari is uh, attached to it, and he prays this fervently. And all at once, uh, the scales fall away, and the despair uh, uh, dissolves, and he has an absolute certainty that God does love him, and this will sustain him for for the rest of his life. It, it's a real triumph of, of, of hope, and I think we can learn much from, uh, from that uh, example of, of Francis de Sales. I think we can learn a ton from that example uh, in a number of ways, and I have to be careful because I might go on my Calvinist rant here <laughs> because of all the people I've known over the years through Bible college and beyond who have been so deeply damaged and wounded up to the people we work with at the Coming Home Network um, who are overcoming just the, uh, the, the brain game that that can be. But I see a commonality between the people who are trying to, you know, tell Francis what they thought was the truth about Calvinism and the people right. who were applying a hot poker to his head at the, <laughs> right, moment, yeah. at, at the it, hour It's a toss-up, which of the two pains was oh, greater. Oh my goodness, they both cause great head pain. But in that, <laughs> right. I think we've all been surrounded by people at various points in our life who are trying to help us, but failing miserably, and right. sometimes just enduring that can be a cross in and of itself. Right. Yeah, Job's comforters, uh, I think, uh, are legion, and they're everywhere. Uh, and Job uh, himself uh, has this wonderful line, even if you should slay me, God, uh, I shall still have hope in you. That that was the life raft that Francis uh, uh, clung to uh, uh, during these uh, moments of crisis, that, that you're hanging by a fingernail, but that proves in the end uh, uh, to be greater than all the weight of the world. I was just thinking about the role of charity and, and what you're saying in the life of St. Francis de Sales. And when we talk about the theological virtues of faith and hope and charity, uh, that, you know, faith as we understand it now won't be in heaven because we'll be in the realization of faith. Right. Hope as we understand it now won't exist in heaven because that hope will be realized. But charity, which is what Francis was clinging to, uh, both in his battle against Calvinism and his battle against the hot poker, I mean, charity is what got him through, it seems. Right. I mean, Christ, God, self-identifies uh, as love. He doesn't say, I am faith, I am hope. He certainly is our faith, our hope, the anchor of all our longing. But at the end of the day, he is love. 
and it's it's love that we're tested upon uh, at the very last. St. John of the Cross has that wonderful line, you know, at the twilight of our life, we will be judged on love alone. And I think that that's, you know, when we're talking about perseverance and patient endurance, and I mentioned that so many people I know who are going through deep personal struggles, just, you know, uh, there, of course, is chaos in the culture, chaos in the church and everything else. And, uh, you know, so often our default can be suspicion, mistrust. Uh, you know, we go to these other places and we don't go to charity. And I think that's why we have trouble persevering. Yeah, I think it helps to have a God's eye view of this. Uh, think of God himself, who knows what a mess the world has made of itself. I mean, who, who, who better than God to see into the heart of things? And yet he remains this perduring love, which in the end conquers all. Uh, he's not uh, uh, inconvenienced or unsettled. Uh, he, he's steadfast, constant. Uh, Charles Peggy has a great line about God that he is a hoper. He hopes that in the end that uh, human beings will maybe show a little courage uh, and reach out with some generosity of soul to him and to others. And I think what carries us along finally is this great current of love, which turns out to be Christ himself. It's not a principle. It's a person. It's easier to cling to a person, you know, when you're desperately alone and afraid than to some you know, impersonal principle, which doesn't save anyone. Right. I mean, in uh, first century BC in the Middle East, God did not send an updated memorandum to attach to the existing Ten Commandments. Right. He sent His only That's begotten right. Son. Yep. And yep. so uh, this is this is so crucial for us to to understand. And I thank you for this article on not giving up. And uh, we've got it linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. I encourage people to listen to it uh, or to read it and uh, get a little bit of a window into the world of St. Francis de Sales, as well as to check out your podcast in search of the still point, which we have linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Dr. Martin, always appreciate you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. God bless you. I'm Matt Swayman. Thank you for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. You can find the Sunrise Morning Show online at sunrisemorningshow.com. Of course, that's S-O-N-RiseMorningShow.com. That's also how you can connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Again, sunrisemorningshow.com. We'll be right back. The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, resuscitation of the Rosary, a fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and Mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective, while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Now that it's back to school time, are you needing a little more of a pick-me-up to get back into an earlier routine? Look no further than the Mystic Monks of Wyoming for the coffee blends and teas you need to perk you up each morning. And when you click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com before you shop, 
A portion of your purchase price is given to us as a commission. And while you're at our site, pick up a Sunrise Morning Show mug in our online store for just $10. Get some great coffee in a great mug, all the while supporting the Sunrise Morning Show by going first to sunrisemorningshow.com. Hi, I'm Father Wade Menezes from the Fathers of Mercy, inviting you to Birmingham for the free EWTN Family Celebration. It's Saturday, August 26th. Enjoy talks from your favorite EWTN radio and TV hosts, including me. You can shop at EWTN's religious catalog, attend Holy Mass, and be part of a televised show. There's even a Eucharistic procession through the streets of Birmingham. Go to EWTN.com slash family celebration to find out more and to register. I look forward to seeing you there. Back with us on the Sunrise Morning Show to take a look at the readings for Mass on Sunday is Father Hezekiah Carnazzo from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Annie. It's a blessing to be with you and your listeners today. It's a blessing to have you back. And we're looking at the readings for the 20th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And the Gospel is from Matthew 15, one of the more puzzling passages in Scripture, or in the Gospels at least, um, a Canaanite woman asked Jesus to heal her daughter who was tormented by a demon, but Jesus won't say a word to her. She persists, and then he goes on to say to her, it is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. Now, was that really the prevailing opinion of Canaanites back then? Uh, can you explain this? Yeah, so much for the uh, felt banner, uh, hippie, you know, peace-loving <laughs> yeah. Jesus. You know, and uh, you know, you have to under look. I, I we regularly say this, don't we? In our in our time together, Annie, that if we if we don't understand Jesus in the proper uh, context of salvation history, then we don't understand his work, and oftentimes we miss the point of what's going on in the stories. And Jesus does become that kind of nice Jesus, except when he's not, and then we kind of ignore those passages. We're like, well, mm-hmm. that doesn't really fit into my perspe- perception of what he's supposed to be. But in ma- as a matter of fact, if we understand him in his proper context as the Messiah, that is the anointed one, the son of David, the king who is to come to restore the kingdom, then we have to understand not only his place in salvation history, but also the place of all those around him. You know, it's, it's back in, in, in chapter of Matthew that Jesus says to his disciples, don't go among the Gentiles. Huh? And so there's this tension. And there's the tension is there because of salvation history and the realization that these are the ones who uh, that stood against the restoration of God's people. And, um, and, and you have to understand, these are, these are Baal worshippers, okay? And, and God's people are in tension with them because um, they are constantly being being, say, assimilated in a bad way to all those people around them. So there's this the realization that those outside the covenant of God are truly people who are under demonic oppression, demonic powers. The whole of the fallen world, because of the sin of our first parents, ends up dislocated from their relationship with God. And these people, the Canaanites, are the worst of the worst, not only because they they were, you know, child sacrificers and so forth, but they had seen the work of God among God's people. They had seen what the Lord had done through them, and yet they stood against them. It's like the people in Jericho, and they, 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 they very much should have seen and realized the Lord was with them, but as a matter of fact, they stood against them. And so they were very much the enemies of the covenant, um, not in the sense of they were, you know, personally guilty, but it's a realization that the 
the whole of the fallen world is under demonic oppression, which is how we begin this, uh, this, this, this gospel passage, is it not? Here's this young girl, she has a demon, and it's important for us to remember today that the devil does exist, mm-hmm. and, and his fallen angels do exist, mm-hmm. and they are at work in this world, and we need to be uh, uh, keenly aware of this reality that we are in a spiritual war, and the battlefield of that war is on the heart of man. Not because this little girl is somehow guilty, but, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an incarnation, of you will, just as much as Jesus is an incarnation of, of, of God, uh, the fallen world is an incarnation of the dominion of the devil because of the fall of our first parents. And therefore, we can understand the perception of God's people regarding those outside the covenant um, as, as Jesus says, as dogs, okay, the, the, and a dog is not like little, you know, frou-frou in our, in our you know, Hollywood backyard. No, a dog in the Middle East, let me tell you, is not a pretty sight. These are mange, uh, just terrible, uh, you know, mm-hmm. what we might consider like a, a city rat. Hmm. And, and, um, and, and that's, but again, from the perception of God's people, from the understanding of salvation history, from the standpoint of the covenant of God, these are people that are outside of the nature to which God had called them to be, okay? And that is the children of God. And yet out of them can come people of great faith. I think of like Ruth, for instance, the story of Ruth. Um, but when we look at this woman's reply, what is it? Can you explain this to us? What is it in her reply that shows this great faith that Jesus recognizes in her? Well, I mean, she simply humbled herself rather than, as we normally do, what? How dare you? I am worthy of my own. No, my brothers and sisters, everything we have is a gift from God, and therefore we must humble ourselves before the Lord, prostrate ourselves before the Lord, and not stand up. I have a right. This is, I, I constantly say this to my parishioners, by the way, that the fundamental sin or the foundation of most of the sins of our lives is the sin of forgetfulness, the forgetfulness that everything is a gift from God, and I, nothing I have is by right, which is totally against, by the way, our American culture of we are, mm-hmm. you know, everything. I have everything by right. No, 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 I have nothing by right. Everything by gift, and therefore I humble myself before the one who has everything that I need. This woman realized that there was none other, no other person she could go to in the entire universe. It was only Jesus that could bring the one thing she wanted so bad, is the healing of her daughter. And when he, she prostrated her life before him, she opened herself up to the possibility of restoration to the only thing that God has to give us, and which is everything, his, his, his eternal life. And that day Jesus poured that gift into her life and restored her daughter. And connect that then to, to the first reading and also, I mean, really to the second reading as well. But the first reading from Isaiah 56, I mean, basically we're seeing that the Lord opens the door to anyone who wants to be united with the Lord. Well, that's a good, that's a beautiful thing about what the Church places before us, is constant rest- the reminder that we are, yes, we are in the 11th Sunday after Pentecost. I mean, we are going out without shining light of Pentecost into a world that it finds itself in darkness, and yet the Lord calls the entire created order. Remember the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, from which our Gospel comes, Jesus is, is he, Matthew begins his Gospel by saying, Jesus, this guy, this guy's the son of Abraham. Abraham, who in chapter 12 of Genesis is to be the father of all nations, and God's people is the beginning of that calling of all nations to him. Israel was meant to be a light to the world. 
This is why we hear this in the gospel. And yet they rejected their calling, their evangelical, evangelical calling to be a conduit of God's life. The prophet Isaiah tells us that, that, that God is going to call all people, as long as they open their heart to his work, as this beautiful Canaanite woman did. And, um, and yeah, you have examples so many times in the Old Testament, and you mentioned Ruth, and here we have it with this Canaanite woman also, of those within the family, oftentimes, because of our sins, set ourselves outside the family. And look, look around us today, so many people fleeing from the Church and not returning to Church, so sad. And many that are outside the family open their heart to the work of the Lord and are incorporated into the family. You know, this is a great message for us today during this time of challenge and crisis. This is a time of opportunity in which the Lord can bring about the salvation of so many that are apparently outside the family of God. If only we would be what God has called us to be, and that is a light to the nations. At this, this is a Christian moment in which the whole world is starving for the, for the presence of God in their life, uh, and we should be ready to act and, and, and move out into the world and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, which is what we, we chant in the, on a Sunday during the Alleluia verses. Jesus proclaimed the gospel as the good news of the kingdom, and that is the king is present, and he is ready to heal and bring about salvation for all those who open their heart to him. And at the end of the reading, the second reading, St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11, for God delivered all to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. We've been talking to Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, and Father, if listeners want to check out the Institute of Catholic Culture, where do they find it? Instituteofcatholicculture.org. Over a thousand hours of free adult faith formation, instituteofcatholicculture.org. Which you can find linked at sonrisemorningshow.com. Thank you so much, Father. That'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you, and grant you his peace. Hear God's word. Let us pray. The sunrise morning show. And a way to start your day. Let's begin this hour of the sunrise morning show in prayer together. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord and Vivifier, your grace has achieved for us all that you had spoken and promised. Grant us access to the place of your peace. For you are our vivifier. You are our consoler. You are our life remedy. You are our standard of victory. Blessed are we, O Lord, because we have known you. Blessed are we because we have believed in you. Blessed are we because we bear your wounds and the sign of your blood on our countenances. Blessed are we because you are our great hope. Blessed are we because you are our God forever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Good morning and welcome to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell and today we're heading to the archives and we will be revisiting some of our favorite interviews from days gone by. Hope you can stick around for the full hour ahead. We'll jump right in and get started. It's two minutes past the hour. 
Liz Lev is with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show. She's an art historian and author of How Catholic Art Saved the Faith. And her latest project is mastersgalleryroom.com. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. So today we're talking about when art came to the rescue of the Sacrament of Confession. To start us off, how much fire did confession come under during the Reformation period? Well, you can imagine uh, the uh, difficulties that the Church had when uh, the the, the uh, protests on the part of Martin Luther and John Calvin and the other very, very important informer, uh, reformers who began to suggest or say that there's really no reason to involve a, a third party, a priest, an absolution, the idea of confessing one's sins in a very formalized sacramental way. You could just tell your sins to, to a friend, you could tell your sins to somebody, and then at the end of the day, uh, not undergo this certain humiliation, and in many ways they suggested it was a trafficking in the um, in the, in, in absolution. So there were a lot of, and there's a certain amount of that, but obviously it kind of, it's the idea of getting a way out of having to stand in a confessional and look at yourself, you know, look at your sins and that, that, that angst of, of, of discussing your sins, you can see how it could become indeed a sort of an attractive solution to, uh, sure. to, to the fear, if you will, of confession. So that's what, that, that, that was, that, and there were several serious doctrinal problems that were involved. There were also major issues regarding, uh, 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 church reform itself. So there was a great deal stacked against the sacrament of confession in particular during the Reformation. And what was the challenge for Catholic artists who were were seeking on behalf of the Church to, to reignite a desire for the sacrament in the faithful? Well, I, I think first and foremost, a way of making confession beautiful again. I mean, at the end of the day, when 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 uh, in many cases uh, the, the Protestant Reformation looks at man as such an ugly mass of sin, so that idea of holding up the mirror and looking at our ugliness and focusing it seems in certain certain tracks if we're focusing on the ugliness, the job of the painters is to show that that ugliness can be washed away, and what God always sees is that beauty underneath. And that's what they needed to work at, to be able to find, to draw, not people physically going to confession, but the idea of there's always a beauty under that mud-spattered sinfulness of ours that God is trying to polish away for us. And of course, there are some great models of that uh, found in Scripture, which would become the subject of some of these pieces of arts. One such model of repentance was, of course, the good thief. So can you tell us about one early rendition of his big moment during the crucifixion? Well, I'll tell you this. The, way, the one I use for the Counter-Reformation is, is Titian's 1566 extraordinary work. But do you know how often that that good thief shows up in art? Mm. As a matter of fact, he shows up even in the Middle Ages, holding his cross and leading the charge into heaven. You know, the ultimate late wow. convert, like what you think of me. But when Titian does this version, it's all in these dark ochres, and, and it's a warm, it's not a cold darkness, it's a warm darkness. And you see Christ, the painting is brilliant. He catches these angles where Jesus is at a diagonal, stretched outwards with his head downwards, almost the way you see the priest in confessional as he listens to you. To you. And the, 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 the good thief, this last spurt of energy, he's lifting himself up. He, you can see 
see him trying to literally get those last words off his chest. And that, that, that joy you feel of knowing that that moment of reconciliation is happening. Is there anything we love more in movies or in scenes in watching that moment of reconciliation happen? Titian captured it perfectly. Wow. And it is a it is a really incredible painting. We'll definitely be linking to your uh, your article on this, your your piece on when art came to the rescue of uh, making penitents look good, so that listeners can can see these works of art for themselves. Now, Liz, why did Mary Magdalene become a favorite figure of penitents in the art world? Mary Magdalene is such such a wonderful figure for women. She she's gone through more costume changes, if you will, than any pop star in a rock concert. She's been the intellectual woman. She's been the wise woman. She's been the apostle to the apostles. But she has a very particular role to play when the 17th century comes around. Her job is to represent the beauty of penitence. This beauty of of, of of the Mary Magdalene in the in in the woods, in the forest, in the desert, contemplating only Christ, leaving behind worldly goods and turning her attention only towards Christ. And it really does help to make us believe that that, that make us understand that penitence, being sorry, doing these acts of reparation, do not shame us and make us ugly and make us make us make us second rate. But this is what makes us beautiful. So tell us uh, about a couple of paintings that you feature about Mary Magdalene and and her penitential ways. So I, Kathy, I, I put in a very I put in a very polemical one. I put in one that that, that caused a bit of a stir. Um, <laughs> it's again, uh, it's a painting by Titian. I have a tremendous love of Titian because Titian recognizes in our desire to look at art, we love that feeling of pleasure. We look at art because it's pleasurable to look at, right? It's something right. that's beautiful. And so he paints a very beautiful, voluptuous Mary Magdalene. She's bare-chested, with golden hair pours across her body, but she stares upwards. Her, her face is completely focused on, on, on things that are not of this world. And it draws out, what it's meant to do is to draw out two things. One, the deeply passionate nature of human beings. We are meant to love God intensely with all of ourselves as God intends to love us. And it also reminds us that in a certain sense, we are always nude and transparent before God in confession, but that God finds us beautiful. So this condition, not shying away from the beauty, the attractiveness of this figure, puts her forward. And you want to know the most amazing thing about that painting? It belonged to a woman. The woman who purchased that painting was Victoria Colonna, loved by Michelangelo and a model of chastity for her age. So I think that's one of the most exciting, provocative ways of thinking about mastering our very human nature and directing that passion and that love that we are born to have towards God. Wow. And now, finally, Liz, you you offer one last example, a painting called Christ Crowned with Thorns. Now, Jesus didn't have anything to repent of, so what was the message in this one? That painting, I must I must admit, and for me, that painting uh, one of the most important things about it is it changed it changed me. 
when I, I went to school in Bologna, that painting was in Bologna, and it, it changed me profoundly in many ways. Made me, it, it drew me into this, this particular field in art. It's a painting which is the same size as you are. So when you walk up to that painting in a museum, it's a painting where you enter into the scene. You're walking into the conversation. And you look at Jesus, who has been beaten, he's been uh, uh, arrested, and now they're putting the crown of thorns on his head. They're literally the, the, the tenderly, gingerly, the, not tenderly, but gingerly. One of, the, one of the guards is pushing the crown on his head. You can see the pain coming down into his brow, but the softness in his eyes is so moving. And the reason why it becomes an ultimate work of penitence, if you look at the the the, the guard is putting the crown of thorns on is on the left hand side kind of scrunched in, there's a guy in the background who's calling the other guards to come and make fun of Jesus. You and I, you and I are standing right in front of him. Mm. So there we are amid that group of people. And how many times have we been told that those thorns in the crown are our sins? And there we are confronted with looking at what it looks like for us to Sin and to hurt Jesus with our sins, and even as we are hurting him, the bound hands of Jesus at the very bottom of the very bottom of the painting seem to be reaching foreshortened into space, ostensibly for the prison guard who's hurting him, but also towards us, so that Jesus' forgiveness, which is ready, ready even as we're committing that sin, is just—it's such an incredibly powerful and beautiful work. Wow. Just looking at this painting and listening to you talk about it, it does. It gives you chills. Uh, listeners, if you want to see the painting that changed Liz Lev, you got to check out her article. This uh, It's an incredible series that, that you've been writing for Alatea Liz on when art came to the rescue during the Reformation. Thank you so much, Liz Lev. You can find Liz linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Go pick up a book copy of her book, How Catholic Art Saved the Faith. Liz, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. We'll be right back. Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. And click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. For more than 150 years, the Comboni missionaries have served the poorest and most forgotten people. With our founders and Daniel Comboni as an inspiration, we work for the full development of the human person through evangelization, education, and advocacy. Your donations make a huge impact, and 95% are used to fund our many projects. Find out more at kombonimissionaries.org. That is kombonimissionaries.org. You listen to the Sunrise Morning Show? Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of the Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of the Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com, L-E-A-H, at sacredheartradio.com. Hey, this is Michael O'Neill, the Miracle Hunter. 
I'll be delving into the fascinating world of miracles and taking you on a hunt that explores the greatest mysteries and marvels of the Catholic Church. I'll be examining what constitutes a miracle, how miracles are investigated and approved, and the role they play in the lives of the faithful. We'll look at the miracles of the Gospels in early Christianity, considering the claims of the miraculous in our own modern age. The Miracle Hunter, tomorrow at 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. The Sunrise Morning Show continues with Bible foods, and here to help us discuss them each week is Rita Heikenfeld from AboutEating.com. Rita, good morning. Oh, good morning, and I think you're going to love our subject. I'm excited about it. Cucumbers coming in strong. So where do they show up in the Bible? Well, in several places. One that's probably most familiar, and one of my favorites, is in Numbers, and we've talked about this before, Matt, in Chapter 11, uh, when the folks were... Uh, escaping Egypt, and they were complaining that they didn't have any of the delicious fish that they had in Egypt, along with cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. So they they were not happy campers at the time. And then there's a a verse in Isaiah in chapter 1, and I wanted to know if you would address that, because you explained that one so well. Well, there's a number of ways to think about this, but it says in Isaiah 1, 8, The daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Now, if you've ever tried to grow cucumbers around the rest of your other plants and you don't do a good job of trellising them, then your garden is a besieged garden <laughs> because those cucumbers will go everywhere, right? And uh, that's kind of an image that you have there of Israel just being tangled up in a whole bunch of vines. Yeah, and I, I just think that's so, when you, when you tell us about it like that, it's so visual it's to vivid. me. vivid, yeah. Obviously, that's an image that would have resonated with the people of Israel because they ate cucumbers. So how do they eat them? Yeah, they did, and, and it was one of the most popular um, foods at the time, and um, actually so valuable that watchtowers were built in the fields so they could protect the crops against thieves, believe it or not. Um, and as far as how they ate them, I have to believe they ate seasonably, like most of them fresh. But I have a feeling, too, they probably preserved them by pickling them with vinegar. Um, and if I were there then, I would have thrown some uh, dill in there, another popular Bible herb. Um, but they also ate them with barley cakes, and that really made a complete meal. So they were really a good part of their diet. The origin of the cucumber sandwich right there in the Bible. So right. <laughs> uh, cucumbers, they are crunchy, they are refreshing, uh, they are good cold out of the fridge. Um, are they good for you? Because there's not a lot to them. Yeah, uh, they contain a lot of water, so they're, it's really a good way to hydrate, um, especially this time of year. But they also have, people might not know, Matt, anti-inflammatory qualities. Um, they have some vitamin C, too, so that's good for skin and immune system and everything else. And here's the deal. Uh, the skins and the seeds are even more nutritionally beneficial than the flesh, which a lot of people always take the seeds out and take the skins off. Um, but again, when you think of fiber, they're a great source of fiber, and you know that helps our digestive system. So cucumbers are all around a great veggie. Well, we were talking about spa waters recently, and you mentioned like a very strange cucumber tip. And a couple people emailed me saying, what was that weird tip that Rita shared about uh, rubbing cucumbers on cucumbers? Uh, so if you could, just share that with us again. Oh, 
I love this one. My mom used to cut the ends of cucumbers off and then rub them on the cut part. And when we asked them, she said, oh, oh, it takes the bitterness out. And I've always done it because I know she's up in heaven watching me, but I really never understood it, like the food science behind it. And one day I was watching TV and there was a, a professional chef on, and she cut the ends of the cucumber off and, and rubbed them. And then she said, if there's acid in the cucumber, when you rub the cut, cut end on the cucumber, you'll see a little bit of foam. And if there's no foam, then the cucumber supposedly has no acid. Anyway, as I said, mom called it bitterness. Professional chefs call it acid. Now, you don't have to do it, but it's sort of a fun way to learn some food science. And, yes, I still do that. Well, there you have it. There you have it. All right, so a lot of people are trying to figure out what in the world to do with all their cucumbers as they come in. You've got a wash tub pickle recipe, and you've shared it before, and it's a very easy one uh, that even kids can do. But I'm very curious about these sun pickles. Tell us about those. I knew you would be. Um, Mary Rudloff Solar Dills, they're called Sun Pickles, and she was um, uh, a German woman, and as I say all the time, she's up in heaven with my mom probably making a batch of these. It's an um, old-fashioned recipe, and what you do is you actually uh, take some cucumbers and you put them, you cut them up, put them in a jar um, after you so- uh, so- soak them in a little salt water. And then what you want to do... Um, you're going to uh, put some dill in the jar and some water and some cider vinegar and some salt. And then you're going to top all that with, believe it or not, some rye bread, usually Yeah, two this pieces. is the part that's crazy. Why would you put a, rye, a slice of rye bread in a pickle jar? Well, I think it has something to do with the yeast, but I remember Mary telling me you can't use any other bread, so rye bread it is. But anyway, um, you sit those in the sun and you cover them. And sometimes um, if you want to replace the, the bread, you can do that. But after about three days, if you look at them, the, the, the cucumbers start to turn a little bit yellow. Um, and they actually, I wouldn't say ferment, but they really almost finish up in the sun. And after the third day, you take the rye bread off, and then you just put the pickles in the fridge. But they're so delicious. They remind me of like a Clawson pickle that you buy in the store. But again, a very old-fashioned recipe, and one I do every year just because it's fun, and, and it's easy, you know, no canning at all. And then the wash tub pickles are fun, too, because, as you said, the little ones can help, and those are put in the refrigerator as well. Well, you know, that would make sense to me. The flavor-wise, it, it makes sense to me because, you know, rye bread goes with tart things and vinegary things, right? Everybody who's eaten a Reuben knows that. Right, so the caraway seeds probably a nice fit with that. I'm gonna have to try this, Rita. This looks cool. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy it, and you'll be surprised at, at just the, the chemistry that goes on in the sun, plus the the taste. So it'll be fun for you. Well, I posted the whole recipe in the show notes today at sunrisemorningshow.com. Head over to uh, our website, and while you're there, click on over to abouteating.com. Share your own pickle recipes because I bet you there's a thousand different pickle recipes floating around our listenership right now, and I know that you'd love to hear them. So. Rita Heikenfeld, have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you soon. I'll talk to you next week, Matt. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. This is Father Rob Jack from Mount St. Mary Seminary. In this month of August, one saint that we remember is St. Monica. She has come down to us through the centuries as a woman of great faith and perseverance in prayer. 
She married Patricius, who was not a Christian, but she managed to convert him to Christianity on his deathbed. She also had several children, and the one that is the most remembered to us is her son, Augustine. She encouraged her son to become a Christian, but he rejected it. She prayed fervently for him for 32 years. Augustine was getting a little bit upset with his mother and her proddings, and so he snuck out to the town of Milan in Italy to set up a school of rhetoric there. And Monica followed him, and while she was there, she continued to say she was praying for his faith, and she encouraged the friendship that Augustine had begun to develop with St. Ambrose. Monica had great confidence that she would succeed because she had talked to the bishop of Hippo before she left, and the bishop said to her, the son of so many mother's tears could not perish. Monica was able to see her son baptized in the year 387. As Augustine began his journey back to North Africa as a Christian, Monica herself fell ill. Augustine talks about her last days in his book, The Confessions. She died then in November of the year 387, and her feast is on August the 27th, the day before the feast of her son, St. Augustine. Let us pray. God of mercy, comfort of those in sorrow, the tears of St. Monica moved you to convert her son, St. Augustine, to the faith of Christ. By their prayers, help us to turn away from our sins and to find your loving forgiveness. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Monica, pray for us. Happy to welcome back to the Sunrise Morning Show, Father Thomas Berg. He is author of Choosing Forgiveness. Father, good morning. Good morning. Today, we're going to be talking about St. Maria Goretti. And she was attacked by a young man, Alessandro Serenelli. The Goretti family uh, worked on the Serenelli farm. He tries to rape her several times. She manages to resist, and then he murders her, and she forgave him. She was, what, 11 or 12 years old. Now, Father, as someone who has written a book on forgiveness, how do you reflect on her story in that way? Well, you know, it's it's really true. It's beautiful to focus on that. A lot of times, obviously, the focus is on her defense of chastity, and I think you know, we'll talk talk about that. But in in some sense, she's very much a, a saint and model of forgiveness. You know, she, uh, the she was asked by her uh, confessor as she lay dying, and this you know this poor um, you know eleven year old girl with you know 14 stab wounds uh, just uh, dying this agonizing death uh the confessor asks her if she forgave alessandro yes i forgive him she says for the love of jesus and i want him to come with me in paradise i want him at my side may god forgive him because i have already forgiven him there shines forth her her sanctity um, and just the incredible power of forgiveness uh, when we open ourselves to uh, the grace uh, that God can can give us um, if we're if we're willing um, the, the 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 power of forgiveness and and as it, it seems that forgiveness kind of was communicated to Alessandro apparently he had a vision of her while while in prison a vision of her presenting to him flower kind of signifying um, 
you know, he understood that to be her offer of forgiveness. And so that that touched him and that actually transformed his life and actually led him after his release to go to her mother and ask her for forgiveness. And then, as we know, Alessandro ends up as a Capuchin brother uh, for the remainder of his life. And so the the power of forgiveness is tremendously transformative. Absolutely. And I want to get to Alessandro in a in a few minutes here, Father, but to talk about Maria Goretti, you know, we've talked about um, in our conversations on on themes in your book, uh, the idea of forgiveness as as an act of prayer and as an act of of worship. And Maria is just a beautiful example of that, isn't she? Oh, absolutely. And it's really the question of her, you know, what the, the effect that she had on Alessandro, that's kind of the captivating thing about all of this. And and what what happened, what transpired in that moment. And um, really, if you there's there's I think there's an important facet that we need to latch on to um, when when Maria is, you know, when he confronts her, her first concern, actually, is not not immediately for her welfare or even for her chastity. It's for Alessandro. Her concern is for him. And Alessandro apparently explained this years years later. She looks at him and she says, "Alessandro, don't do it. It is a sin. You will go to hell." What what really penetrated him? What and in a sense, what what set him off? Um, was was that it was it was that look that that gaze we might say her her virginal gaze um the the gaze of her purity in which no doubt one alessandro himself could see uh the love of of christ but that in that moment that probably just put him into that rage um and that's why in some in in a sense in a very real sense uh maria gritty dies in odium fidei right but because mm. she was able to transmit to Alessandro that love of Jesus and that look and that gaze before the tragedy unfolds. Yeah. I mean, very much like our Lord on on the cross, you see the ugliness of sin really, really come out in, in rage when when that forgiveness is is offered so purely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so this is really the 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 at the heart of the the beauty of of Maria Gretti's testimony, it was her 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 purity, but the purity of her love and her ability uh, to to love even in this moment and to put even to put aside when when her I mean this this young man he's he's brandishing a ten inch knife over her and she's 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 still able to look at him and we can just imagine her looking him in the eye and. And being concerned about him and about his eternal salvation, and that—that's really at the heart of her forgiveness too. I want Alessandro to be with me in paradise, you know, and kind of connects back to uh, things we've talked about. Forgiveness, one of the, at the heart of forgiveness is, when, especially when we've been deeply hurt by someone, is to to receive the grace to will the good for that person. And and even with Maria, you know, I'm sure plenty of listeners can think of persons in their lives. Can you will that this person, even this person who's hurt you very deeply and profoundly, uh, can you will the good for them? Can you will 
that they would be with you in paradise one day. And then it's one thing to to offer it, and then it's another to be the perpetrator and to ex- well to seek out in some cases and to accept that forgiveness. Can you talk about Alessandro as as an example of restorative justice? Sure. The heart of what's called restorative justice is the the hope and the the attempt and the endeavor to reestablish right relationships between all of the stakeholders in a tragedy. One of the key practices of restorative justice is, is forgiveness. And here you see with um, Alexandra and Maria's dramatic example of this, how how forgiving the perpetrator. And again, we've talked about how forgiveness doesn't you know necessarily mean, um, saying what happened is okay or it's fine or letting somebody off the hook. Um, but that, that forgiveness can actually contribute, uh, can be a first step to restoring a life, to um, helping, a, a per, helping even the perpetrator to become whole again, which is so beautifully um, shown in the, you know, the life of Alessandro, 20, I think 23 years or 27 years in prison, he's released. Um, and then he asks forgiveness of Maria's mother. He joins the Capuchins as a brother friar and, and, um, and lives out the rest of his life. And um, that's, that's, that's restorative justice in, in action. It's a dramatic example. Father, we've been talking about St. Maria Goretti as an icon of forgiveness, as an icon of purity of love. But There are some who struggle with how her story often gets portrayed and that, you know, well-meaning people will uphold Maria as as someone who was holy because she resisted Alessandro even up to the point of her death. And that can be problematic, can't it, when it comes to to victims of sexual violence who were unable to resist their attacker. That's right. And I think this is becoming more common. Uh, I'm just quoting from one article here um, from a, a while back. For too long, the church has been fixated on women's virginity as an end in itself, as if chastity were a possession a girl can lose for good rather than a virtue to be cultivated. This view reduces women to objects that men can possess or spoil and makes men, all men, a threat to be deflected. We have to remember, and even in the context of Maria Goretti, you know, purity is a a moral quality, and even in the case of sexual assault and rape, it can't be taken from a woman. Um, it's it can only be given freely, intentionally. It's not always the case that uh, a woman can fend off uh, a per, the perpetrator. So yeah, so there's been this attempt to look deeper into you know what is the uh, really at the heart of Maria Gretti's witness, and even though she, certainly she was she was hailed uh, by Pius XII as um, the martyr of chastity, John Paul II kind of reiterated that. But is it so much the the protection of chastity, or is it her virginal love, her virginal non-possessive love of even of Alessandro? It would seem she wanted to protect her physical integrity, but but first and foremost, it was her virginal love of even this person who's who's attacking her. So there's there's I think it's it's true that there's something deeper to discover in 
the the witness of Maria Goretti simply beyond the the protection of the virtue of chastity. So, you know, looking looking deeper, and I think in the context of, um, I just think it's I think it's so important in the context of sexual abuse and for victims to understand that, you know, there was where there was no intention uh, to relinquish. Um, and, and certainly the history of the church is, has other examples of um, saints who, yeah, they, it, would, it would seem, one would, one would seem to infer even uh, that they were sexually abused, you know, and that, that doesn't mean that somehow they lost their purity or even, right, they may have lost their physical integrity, but virginity is, it's a virtue of the heart and purity is a virtue of the heart. So I, I think that's, that's really so important to understand that, you know, even though one suffers, um, even though a woman suffers an attack and abuse in that sense, um, it doesn't mean that they're relinquishing the, the beauty of this quality of their heart. Such an important conversation, a difficult conversation to have, but an important one to have as we celebrate St. Maria Goretti and the the heroic virtue, the example that she is for all of us. And we've been talking about it with Father Thomas Berg. You can find his book, Choosing Forgiveness, linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Father Thomas, really appreciate you uh, taking on this topic for us this morning. Thank you. Thanks so much. Great being with you. Stay tuned for more of the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 minutes past the hour. Coffee seems to become more important when any new school year rolls around, and this is a year to consider treating yourself to some truly delicious coffee. For that, we can highly recommend Mystic Monk Coffee, and when you shop their site after clicking the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, you earn us a commission to help fund the show. You can also treat yourself to a new Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug in our online store. Get a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. What does the church say about Satan? With some other angels, Satan chose to reject God's wishes and by their own choice became evil in their nature. One passage in Scripture tells us of Jesus' temptation in the desert. Satan made one promise after another to Jesus in an attempt to have him reverence him rather than God. Satan was unsuccessful with Jesus, but he continuously tries to win you and me over to his ways. Though, like us humans, a created being, because Satan is a spirit, he does have powers and abilities we humans do not. He therefore has the ability to lure us into his ways. God could, of course, have destroyed or otherwise incapacitated Satan and his band of followers when they first sinned against him, but rather has allowed him to exist, even as a threat to the spiritual well-being of all humans. We cannot understand exactly why God made this choice, but we can be sure that all things by God are for our well-being. For more information, contact your local pastor or refer to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 391 through 95. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney. 
Father John Gavin back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show. He's author of Mysteries of the Lord's Prayer. Good morning, Father. Good morning. So we are continuing our series on the Catechism and the Church Fathers. Today we're looking at Catechism Paragraph 163, which includes a quote from St. Basil the Great, who is not just a Church Father, but is also a Doctor of the Church. Mm. Here is Paragraph 163. Faith makes us taste in advance the light of the beatific vision, the goal of our journey here below. Then we shall see God face to face as he is. So faith is already the beginning of eternal life. And here's the quote. When we contemplate the blessings of faith even now, as if gazing at a reflection in a mirror, it is as if we already possessed the wonderful things which our faith assures us we shall one day enjoy. Now, Father, before we get to the quote itself, can you tell us about the context in the catechism in which mm. this paragraph is? Sure. So the context, obviously, the catechism is talking about the theological virtue of faith. And prior to what we're looking at here with this quote, the catechism tells us, first of all, that faith is a personal adherence to God alone, that is, it's grounded in a personal relationship with God who created us and loved us. But at the same time, it tells us that faith is a free assent to all that God has revealed. That is, especially God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity. Mm. And then in turn, it tells us two things that are very important. First of all, faith is a grace. That is, as a theological virtue, it's not like other virtues where we can kind of exercise them through uh, human experience, like courage or patience, but rather it's an infused gift that is given to us by God. And then in turn, though, it is also, it tells us, a human act. That is, uh, grace doesn't obliterate our human nature, destroy it, but rather it perfects it and elevates it. And so that's why we heard that it's a free ascent. It incorporates our freedom, right? Mm. So the, the theological virtue of faith is both a gift, but also incorporates our full humanity. And then, as you were just reading in that paragraph there, the gift of faith, uh, really, it's the beginning of eternal life. It says it, it grounds us and gives us a foretaste of the future gifts that we, will sh we are to receive from God, right? So these, these are some wonderful, wonderful uh, things about, we could say so much more here, but this takes us to Basil the Great, of course, his quote there. And Basil was, as you said, a doctor of the Church, uh, one of the great bishops and leaders during the whole controversy surrounding Arius, uh, lived from 330 to 379. But the quote comes from uh, a work called On the Holy Spirit, hmm. and in this work, uh, Basil and uh, his uh, brother, Gregor of Nyssa, and his good friend, Gregor of Nazianzus, were involved in defending the divinity of the Holy Spirit, right? There was actually a debate going on in this period about that. And so he wants to show in the work that we know the Holy Spirit is God, is divine, by what the Holy Spirit gives us, right? 
so you just read that quote where we hear, in the context, again, is the Holy Spirit, that through the Holy Spirit, we receive that gift of faith that already assures us of the great gifts that we come to know and assent to in the promises of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, some beautiful uh, things that he's saying here. So, he, I, I'll read another part of that that expands on it, and this gets really exciting. He says, Through the Holy Spirit comes our restoration to paradise, our ascension into the kingdom of heaven, our turn to the adoption of sons, our liberty to call God our Father, our being made partakers of the grace of Christ, our being called children of light, our sharing in eternal glory, and in a word, our being brought into the state of all fullness of blessing. Wow. Now, yeah. All that through the Holy Spirit, the, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's the great deal, yes. It's like, and the thing is, we receive that gift of faith. I mean, all these things have been promised to us, but as we hear, it's, it's a free ascent to all that God has revealed. I mean, this is what has been revealed to us by Christ, but through the Holy Spirit in this gift of faith, we taste it even now. I mean, we, we share in it even now, and we are directed to the fullness in the future. I mean, uh, if that doesn't get us out of bed in the morning, I don't know what will. Yeah, really, for real, Father. Man, that's incredible. The um, Can you talk about the role of—I mean, we, we hear about um, the idea of, of the Church being the kingdom here on Earth. What is— mm the role of the Holy Spirit in all of that? Sure. Well, it's interesting because I think, remember, when we were back talking about the Our Father, mm-hmm. uh, some fathers of the Church actually identify uh, the kingdom with the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Uh, so these gifts that are brought. So on the one hand, we know that the, the, the kingdom begins, you know, and really emerges with the coming of Christ, and unfolds in the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's a reality that we are experiencing even now in the salvation that has been won for us in Christ, and is being gifted to us even now through the Holy Spirit. And every time we celebrate uh, the, the Mass or any of the sacraments, the, the continuing emergence of the Kingdom. But on the other hand, as we hear here, uh, the Kingdom is not yet also, right? I mean, even though we're, we're experiencing it now, the kingdom is to come. And so we await the fullness of the kingdom in the resurrection and that full union with God. But the wonderful thing about the gift of faith and through the Holy Spirit, uh, we are living the reality of that kingdom that has been won for us in Christ now, but at the same time we are directed toward things that have not yet been fully seen, that is, the fullness of the resurrection that has been promised to us and, and brought to us in our Lord. You know, you, you keep talking about the gift of faith. Mm-hmm. Can you speak about the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to us having faith in the first place? Because this is not—I mean, it's, it's kind of—it's almost like— um, I don't know if paradoxical is the right word that I'm looking for here, but mm. the, the the fact that we have faith is the work of God, um, mm-hmm. that we can't have faith without God in the first place. Does that make sense? Right. No, absolutely. 
And as, as I was saying earlier, of course, faith is one of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, love. And these are virtues that one cannot simply grow in by kind of daily experience. They are infused, they are gifted to us. But especially, these are the virtues that form that personal adherence to God alone, right, that we heard earlier, and actually bring us into that life and the body of Christ. And so it's something that we simply can't generate on our own. We have to receive them through the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, as I said earlier, they, they draw in the fullness of our humanity. I mean, they perfect us as human beings. I mean, those with faith, if we look toward the saints, as we are, uh, especially these days, right? Yes. Uh, when we look to the saints, we see the, what, what, what faith does in transforming a person, right? Uh, that gift. It, it, it's not something that, like, you, I just believe that I have willpower, right? Mm-hmm. But what we see in the saints is that infusion of grace in the Holy Spirit that makes them the true gifts and personalities that they are. We've been talking to Father John Gavin. You can find his book, Mysteries of the Lord's Prayer, linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Really loving this uh, series on the Church Fathers and the Catechism, getting a, a deeper understanding of the Catechism through the wisdom of the fathers of the church and have really been enjoying your comments on this father thank you so much thank you for having me god bless you too father thanks you're listening to the best of the sunrise morning show we'll be right back support for the sunrise morning show is from visiting angels visiting angels provides experienced compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com. Franchise opportunities available. The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, resuscitation of the rosary, a fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org. If cold brew is what you like to drink when the weather's hot, why not save some cash and make your own with Mystic Monk Coffee? They have all kinds of coffee blends that taste great hot or cold. They've got options for you to make iced tea as well. And when you click through to the Mystic Monks from our site, sonrisemorningshow.com, we earn a commission from your purchase. You can also check out our online store to get a Sunrise Morning Show ceramic or travel mug. Find a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sunrisemorningshow.com. Proclaiming the faith, changing lives. The year was 1961. Rome grants Mother Angelica permission for an Alabama foundation. To honor her promise to God and with all the right approvals in place, Mother leaves her Ohio convent to found Our Lady of the Angels Monastery in Irondale, Alabama, which has a Catholic population of 2%. To learn more about Mother Angelica's life and the history of EWTN, visit EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica. The 
Sunrise Morning Show continues. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Father Jonathan Duncan. He's a priest of the Diocese of Charleston, here to look ahead to the readings for the 20th Sunday in Ordinary Time this weekend. Father Duncan, good morning. Morning, Matt. How are you doing? Doing well, and some people will point to the shocking moments in the life and ministry of Jesus and say, oh, there's that time he went and cleared out the temple. Isn't that a shocking moment? Or, you know, the time that he really argued hard with the Pharisees, you know, that's shocking moments. To me, I think that this has got to be in the top three. The shocking exchange that Jesus has with a Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15. If you could sort of uh, break that down for us and why it's such a strange way for our Lord to interact with somebody. Yeah, so I think, you know, just to start off by saying, if you... If you come to the Gospels, and if you come especially to this passage from the Gospels, with the assumption that, you know, the Lord Jesus was just here to come and uh, teach people how to be good, teach them how to be nice, then this will not make sense. This does not fit your paradigm. <laughs> exactly. And if, if your paradigm is the Lord Jesus came to just be a nice guy wandering around, shaking hands with old people, kissing babies, and, and saying nice things, then this will not make sense. So let's just take a look at the passage. So in it, we're told that Jesus, that Jesus comes to uh, a pagan area, and that as he's coming, a Canaanite woman approaches him, and that she cries out, and, and we're told that she, her daughter, is tormented by a demon. But Jesus doesn't answer her. And she, it's interesting, she cries out to him in, in the great Jewish expression, have pity on me, Lord, son of David. She acknowledges him as the, the son of David, even though she is herself Canaanite, right? The ancient enemy of, of Israel. And the disciples want to call her away, and then finally she begs, and Jesus' reply is, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then we're told the woman says, Lord, help me. And this is Jesus' response that bothers a lot of people. It is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. And she responds, please, Lord, for even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table of their masters. And Jesus responds, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. Now, what makes this difficult is, you know, I think we often assume that Jesus is predictable, that he should be predictable, and we're confronted with these moments. And as I was thinking about this more, I, I kept thinking, you know, we, do, we want Jesus to be predictable, but essentially a, another word for predictable is tame. And there's that wonderful line that pops up a couple of times, in, um, in the Narnia books, especially the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where they're describing Aslan, and where they say, you know, like, he's not a tame lion. He's not a safe lion. And I think so often we want Jesus to be tame, right? We want him to be predictable. We want him to say the things. And Jesus comes and says, look, I have an order. There's an order to my ministry. I'm not here uh, to just generically go and visit everyone. I'm here to you know, gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm here to gather Israel, to renew Israel, to make a new Israel, and then to send them out to be a light to all the nations. And so I think when we see that, okay, Jesus has a... See, that's, that's what makes him 
different from what we would imagine. Forces are predictable, right? Gravity is really predictable. You know, if I throw, um, throw a piece of paper, I know exactly what it's going to do. If I drop a glass, I know what it's going to do. Forces like that are predictable. But persons are not predictable because persons have a will. And Jesus is revealing himself to not be some abstract force, but to be a person who has you know, a will and, I, and has yeah, a plan. I, 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 I think that's such an important point to make, that, that he, there's, we don't understand how grace works because it's not, grace doesn't work like physics. I, I ran across a great quote from Frank Sheed yesterday when he says, For all of us, the temptation occasionally arises to decide some question with the confidence that the decision is God's when all that we have done is to decide what we would do if we were God, <laughs> right? And I think that that's one of the reasons this passage rubs us in such a strange way. But I also, you know, wonder about the dynamics of the people watching this and how, you know, Jesus doesn't ever do anything just for its own sake. Otherwise, why would we have this story? He was doing it also for the benefit of those around to help understand that, Yes, I have come to the lost sheep of Israel, but this is the kingdom of God, and every kind of bird is going to settle in the branches of the bush that's going to grow here. Oh, and this is, of course, what she gets. You know, that, that line from Narnia, you know, he's not tame, he's not safe, but he is good. That's what the woman gets, because she gets, I mean, that's essentially her response to him is, look, I get that I don't have a place at the table, but I know that there's enough on your table, that your table is going to be so overflowing that even I, who can't dare to come and presume to sit at that table, there's going to be enough for me, because your, your table is going to be so overflowing. That's what she gets. He's not tame, but he is good. And she understands that, and she's able to go and essentially ask for this, not based on her goodness, but based on his. And I think when we realize that, and as you said, the, the whole theme of grace here, that she couldn't simply come forward and demand things, and that none of us can come forward and demand things. She could have walked away and said, how dare he call me a dog? But she realizes that this man is good, and that ultimately she can't demand anything of him, but she's going to rely not on her goodness, but on his. And I think, I think this is a helpful scene, though, for all of us who may struggle with those moments when Christ isn't tame or isn't predictable like we might expect, and when his church and when his teachings aren't, this is a helpful moment. Because the question I would put to people is, you know, I have kids, and you probably mentioned this before, I'm a former Anglican priest, but, you know, my kids never do anything predictable. Why would I expect if God came in the flesh that he would be predictable, that he would do things according to the way I think he should? And the Gospels bear that out time and time again um, for, in so many ways. But I also like this passage because I, too, am a Gentile dog. And to know that there's enough food on that table to fall off for me in the kingdom of God is a pretty great consolation, too. So, Father Jonathan Duncan from Greenville, South Carolina, always appreciate checking in with you. Have a great day. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Matt. Take care. That'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, go to sunrisemorningshow.com. You can connect with us through Facebook and Twitter that way. You can also connect with us on SoundCloud and access our podcasts. For Anna Mitchell and Paul Lockman, I'm Matt Swaim. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.